Well, with that, go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you can grab the pew Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 811. And as you watched just a moment ago in the video that was shown, uh, you will see that we are in a series now, uh, a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And we come to Matthew chapter 6 where we're addressing for the next three weeks uh, the the, uh, Lord's Prayer. One of the most famous passages of all uh, of Scripture. And for the next three weeks we're going to look at this uh, with some real depth to it, understanding uh, what each of these lines, what each of these words uh, means for us. And and, and as we do that, I, I want to just give a, a way of introduction, some truths about the Lord's Prayer that we need to know and, and recognize. And so grab that sermon insert, and uh, we will get to uh, the looking at our text. But as a whole, as we come to this place, we know Jesus has been teaching us uh, now for some time in the Sermon on the Mount what it means to be kingdom followers, what it means to be uh, people who do the will of God Uh, in our everyday life. We've learned that our attitudes need to be different through the Beatitudes. We've learned in the end of chapter 5 that our actions, the way we interact with one another, the way we forgive, the way we speak to one another, the way we look to one another uh, is to be different than the world says it is. And now we come to the aspect of this sermon series where we talk about our affections, the kingdom affections. How do we interact with our God? How are we to show our love to Him? And we started last week, or two weeks ago, I'm sorry, talking about our giving and our service to God and how that is to be done for God and not done so that others may see it. And then last week we talked more generally about the issue of prayer and that our prayers are to be uh, things that, uh, first of all, take place in private. And then out of an overflow of our hearts, they they can come into public types of prayer uh, as well. But now we get to the affection of learning how to pray in the Luke's, in Luke's parallel passage of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this passage begins by the disciples asking their teacher, their master, Lord, teach us how to pray and how we need that today. We need our Lord and our Savior to teach us how to pray because we're going to learn that this is communication. Prayer is communicating uh, just as we do each and every day with one another. It's communicating with God, but we must recognize and know that we are communicating with the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and we need an example of how to pray. We need to know what we need to be praying about, to whom we need to be praying And so there are some general observations that I want to make about the Lord's Prayer before we even get into the text, before we even start looking at what each of the words say. And I want you to notice a couple things in our text this morning. Number one, we need to recognize that what we are going to be looking at, for the most part, is a pattern of prayer. Write that somewhere. This is a pattern for our prayer. In verse 9, Jesus says, and pray then like this. Notice he doesn't say, uh, I want you to pray the exact words or repeat after me uh, the following. No, he says, I want you to pray like this. This is a model. This is a pattern by which we can follow. Next, we're going to see that right away we will see whom we are to be praying to. Who is to be on the other side of our prayers. And notice we are going to be told that it's a singular person, our Father in heaven. Let us never get into the habit of praying to other individuals, whether dead or alive. As wonderful as our Lord and Savior's mother Mary was, we are never called to pray to her, through her, or by her. We are to call out to our heavenly Father who is in heaven. Notice as we get through this text and through this prayer that we will see that the model of the prayer that God wants us to pray is a balanced prayer. It balances itself with praise and adoration. It balances itself with petition and the need for our daily provision. It talks about the bigness of God and also deals with the smallness, if you will, of our need for daily bread. It is a beautiful picture of the balance that our prayers need to have. Next, we need to be reminded of how our prayers should be broken down. In essence, there are three bullet points in this prayer. First, looking to our God and focusing our time and attention on our Father who is in heaven, that we would hallow the name of God. 
Second, we would look to ourselves and look to our need, our dependency on that God whom we've hallowed and whose name is greater than any other name. And we are to put our focus and attention on our needs, giving them to our God as small as the daily bread that we may need. But notice it moves then to others. So we go from God to our own lives and to the lives of others that we are called to forgive We are called to show love and mercy because we too are people who have had our trespasses and our debts forgiven. It also leads us to know that we are in a battle. A battle where we will need to be not led into temptation, but to be delivered from all evil. And so here are some wonderful words. Now, before you think too far that uh, because this is a model of how prayer is to be prayed and whom it is to be prayed to and, and, then, and then the pattern or the balance that the, our prayers need to have. Many will say right away, well then, anytime this prayer is prayed in public, I should push it away because that's not the intention. But I would say that there's balance in that as well. Should we then never say this prayer in public? I don't think that's the case because here is the thing. While Jesus does say pray like this, He doesn't just give a set of bullet points for what we should pray. He leads us in a prayer. It's a very very consistent and, and clear prayer that we can utter these same words that Jesus uttered and be praying all at the same time. And so I think it is altogether good. I think it is altogether profitable for a people, whether as individuals or as a body of believers, to lift their voice with one accord with their Savior in heaven and utter and recite these words just as they have been recorded to us in Scripture. Now, right away, some may say, wait a minute, Tim. Doesn't reciting a prayer like this uh, then become rote? Yeah, it can. And it should never substitute our need for free-flowing and heartfelt prayers of the faithful. We should never allow this prayer and our reciting of it become a mindless collection of words used in a religious scenario. To do that would be to profane the name of God whom we confess as Lord. Finally, one other thing I want to bring as a way of introduction this morning with regards to the Lord's Prayer is we can never look as powerful as this prayer is as a magic formula to what we want. We can never see this as if I pray this enough times, if I pray this with enough uh, passion in my heart that these words become some magic word of formula that will then lead God to do what we want him to do. In fact, the Lord's Prayer is the exact opposite. The Lord's Prayer is a contrite and humble assessment of who we are in our spiritual and our physical need for forgiveness and mercy and even the daily need of protection and provision to the only one who can provide it, our Father who is in heaven. It is communicating with our dad and trusting in that he is a loving and caring God. So let's turn our attention for the next three weeks to this prayer. And I want to look under the heading of, do you buy it? And what I mean by that is, Do you believe the Lord's Prayer to be that model? Do you believe the Lord's Prayer to be a prayer to the God who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly more than you could ever ask for or imagine? You see, one of the biggest reasons why many people, especially in evangelical circles, don't like the Lord's Prayer is they see so many unbelievers praying this prayer. And I will tell you that if this prayer is not prayed in faith, they are simply words. But when built with a desire to pursue and honor God with heart and, and faith-filled, uh, with faith-filled hearts, desiring for God to do what we pray in agreement with Him, God says these prayers can move mountains. So with that, it is not simply enough for us to know these words, but to buy into them by faith and to believe in them. And even more importantly than buying and believing in the words, 
that are placed before us out of the lips of Jesus Christ himself is to buy and believe and to trust and put your hope in the God to whom we pray these words. So let us stand for our time to look at this text. And I'm going to ask that we as a body recite these words together for they are the written word of God and they are the model by which God has given us to pray. And so I will lead us in a a, a praying of this prayer and then we'll go on with our time together. So if you would follow along and and I would ask that if, if you desire that you would read this prayer with me Uh, As I read it from the ESV translation of Scripture, it starts like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we are going to learn today how truly awesome you are. And we are going to be brought front and center to the God whom we pray to. And Lord, as we get to know you, it will become very evident as it is in my own heart that if I believe you are all that you say you are. Then why don't I pray more? If I believe that you hold this world and the universe and all that it contains in your hands, then why would I not put in your hands my need for daily bread? My need for daily protection? My need for forgiveness? If you are the God whom you say you are, then why in the world do I not lift high your name and set apart your name above all others? And so, Lord, as we open this prayer today, as we explore it word by word, phrase by phrase, Lord, I pray that that we would encounter you. And then in encountering you in our private times of prayer and in, in, in our public gatherings together, that our prayers would be far more heartfelt that they would be far more deep than just the surface. Here are my list of needs, God. That they would follow your pattern and your model so that you, in our prayers, might be glorified and brought praise. Lead us in this time now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen and amen. Prayer is a difficult thing for us as people. Just as our children have to come to grips with learning how to communicate uh, as a way of language, so we as Christians have to learn how to communicate with our God. It means we have to get to know this God and understand Him and know what He desires and know what He wants. And, And it means that we will grow in our vocabulary and our communication with Him. My five year old does a great job of communicating for a five year old, but not for a 35 year old. And so the job that Luke has is to continue to grow and learn what it means to communicate with the world around him. And likewise, we as Christians must always be evolving and growing in our communication with our God. If we find ourselves communicating with our God as we did when we first came to know Christ, something is wrong. If we only know that which we learned early on in our lives about the God whom we serve and whom we pray to, then our relationships will grow stagnant. We need to be a people, and the prayers that God gives us will help us in developing a robust and mature communication with Him. But it takes discipline. It takes hard work. It doesn't come naturally to us. Now, prayer in and of itself, seemingly, is a very natural thing. Think about it for a moment. The words that Jesus shares with us are all words that anybody could understand. They're words that are easy. We could share these words as if we were talking to someone else. And so the Lord's Prayer is an incredibly natural, human, earthy type of activity. But right before I go too far with that, I must recognize that if there was an unbeliever in our midst, someone who has never been a part of the Christian culture before, would right away say, earthy, human, 
normal. Prayer is none of that. You are talking to someone you have never seen. You are talking to someone who isn't here. You are talking and communicating to someone who is not talking and communicating verbally back at you. And if he has, I want to hear from you, by the way. What you're doing, Christian, is totally abnormal. When we see people do that, we we want to get them medication. We want to put them in places when they start having conversations with their invisible friends. And so while the words that Christ has laid before us are incredibly human, if you will, they're easy. There are things that my three boys would readily be able to understand. It takes faith to be able to believe that they are truly what they are. And so, as we approach this text, as we approach this prayer, faith is a huge part of what we're going to do. To pray is to be a person of faith. If you have no faith, you will not pray. Because there's no reason to pray. There's no reason to waste your time. But if we are filled with faith, then these words will roll off our tongues with great desire in our heart to see what God desires in this prayer to come about to be made manifest in our own lives. And so as we approach this prayer, we need to ask some questions this morning as we look at the first couple lines. Do we buy what God is, if you will, presenting to us that prayer truly does change our lives? That prayer is communicating with the Almighty? Do we believe that? That God wants to hear us? That God wants to answer our prayers? Do we believe that by faith? Because if we do, it's going to involve us making some very important decisions. And there are three that I want us to look at today. If you want to see the Lord's Prayer being lived out in your life on a daily basis, then it means, first of all, you have to acknowledge the person of God in your life. You have to acknowledge the person of God in our life. Now notice, Jesus starts out this famous passage of Scripture, this famous prayer, with a simple line, Our Father in heaven. Now let's take a couple moments to notice what we learn from this. First of all, we see that Jesus quickly articulates that we are to be praying this, and that we are to be praying it to a specific person. Now notice, right away, he starts with the word, our. That's an important word. We don't want to gloss over that, because notice Jesus doesn't say, my Father in heaven. He doesn't say, you are to pray like this, his Father in heaven, her Father in heaven, or mine, but ours. This plural is a reminder that you and I are not alone in our life of faith. It's a reminder that the Lord's Prayer is not a private prayer, for there is no I, there is no me anywhere found in the prayer. Inherent within this word, our, is a conscious reminder that you and I are bringing our personal requests, our personal desires, our personal concerns to a God, and we are not an only child's. That we join with the thousands upon thousands of people who are bringing their requests before their God as we do the same. It's a reminder that you and I are involved in a community. Write that down. We are involved in a community with others. And so as we pray this prayer, this prayer is a communal prayer. It is a prayer that we need to not only live out in our own lives, but as we approach the throne of grace with confidence, we do so knowing there are others in our midst. There are others even on the other side of the world who have prayed likewise. There are those who have gone before us, who are no longer with us, who have prayed according to this prayer. And it is a reminder of the absolute heritage of faith that you and I have as followers of Jesus Christ. This has been the prayer of the faithful for so many years. It reminds us, and right away Jesus gives us a sense of identity, that when we pray collectively, listen, as a body, We no longer pray as individuals. As Al led us in this prayer this morning, your job is not to simply passively respond or listen as your response, but you are to, in agreement, pray that to God as well. God, 
I lift up Pastor Mario and his family with the death of his mom. Lord, I, I agree with my elder, my friend, Al Gonerman, who has prayed that, that we lift up and encourage those who are hurting. And we are in agreement with that. It is not so that we can hear another pray. It is so that we can have the opportunity in one voice to be in agreement with our prayer and petition before God. But why are we in this community? The reason why is the next line in the, in the text, our Father. You see, our community isn't just that we're connected uh, in our prayer life, but we are actually connected via relationship because we're in a family. Our Father who is in heaven. Now notice when we are able to pray that, we will see that our gathering this morning is not founded in our commonality as a race or in our background. It is not because we meet together because we have a certain ideals when it comes to politics or we're together because of our occupations or our social economic uh, status. We gather together to praise and pray and preach to one common truth, and that is you and I, who are incredibly different, are the same because we all worship the same and one and true Father who is in heaven. And so we gather together, and as we are given this prayer, we are reminded that we are not doing this alone, but we're doing this together, and we're doing so under the watchful eye of our Father who resides in heaven. Now, right away, many of us will say, well, so what? I'm a child of God. I've known that. Tim, God is my Father. That's a truth that, that each of my children would be able to articulate incredibly quickly. But there was a scandalous tone to what Jesus shares in first century Palestine when he articulates that we are to pray in such a way. This was unheard of in Jesus' day. To name God as your Father was something that was seen only a few times in the Old Testament. In fact, write this down. There are only 14 references in the Old Testament of God as Father. And the vast majority of them spoke of God being the father of the Israelite nation, not a father of a particular person and people. So here Jesus brings this fresh and new and yet scandalous idea of that which you and I have allowed to become commonplace. The truth is, as we explore the words of Jesus, we learn something so, inver- so incredibly important. Notice when Jesus uses the word Father, he uses an Aramaic word, Abba. Not to be thought of, of the, I believe it's the Swedish 70s disco band. But the term that literally means daddy. Now I want you to notice one commentary, uh, commentator said that this word Abba is the word that makes the natural division between the Old Testament and New Testament. And here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, 14 references to God as our Father. In the Gospels alone, this word Abba is used 60 times. You see, Jesus turns our relationship with our God upside down. He says, I know that you've known this transcendent God. You've known this God who in many ways is untouchable, that you cannot approach this God. But I want you to know that God of the patriarchs, that God of the prophets is your dad. This word Abba does not speak of formality, but it speaks of familiarity. This word Abba is what I hear when I walk into the doors with my five-year-old son, Luke. He's the only one that does it anymore, but praise God that he still does it. That when I come through the door, I hear, hey, daddy's home. And it comes not with a stiff child who comes and says, yes, father, you are here. I wish sometimes they would do that. But it comes with a kid running at high speeds to grab a hold of my leg and say, Dad, it's good to see you. And what Jesus is wanting us to know is that the God of this universe has saw fit that we can run to him and put our arms around him and say, this is my dad. 
This is a dad who I'm familiar with. This is a dad who I can talk to. This is a dad that I don't have to worry and cower in fear. But he is a dad who loves to hear from his children. He is a dad who longs to hear our heartbreak stories. He is a dad who longs to help us in our hour of need. Where did we learn to talk to our dad like this? Any time that Jesus uses the word father in his earthly ministry, he uses this word Abba, except for once. On the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is so important to recognize because you you will understand how sinful our sin was. That the only time where Jesus speaks of his father, not in the term of his dad, but as his God, is when our sins are placed upon him on the cross. That he could no longer call his dad, dad. Because fellowship had been broken. Even his last prayer here on earth, on that cross, he cries out, Abba, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. So God wants us to approach him. And here's a masterful thing to remember. He wants us to approach him as Jesus did. If that doesn't kick your prayer life into high gear, then don't listen to the rest of the sermon because nothing else will work. We get to approach God as Jesus did with all our sin. And all our frailties and all our mistrust and and all of our struggles. But this Abba is so very important. Amanda told me, move along in your first point. And, And I lovingly said to her, that's where the whole message is at. Because if we miss this, we miss everything. You see, the word Abba, Father, reminds us, number one, that we are loved. Now, I know some of you in your earthly relationships with your father, your father was lousy. He was a jerk. He didn't show you God in any way. Your father was the devil in many of your, your minds because of what he did. But I want you to know that, that, that God is a loving father. He is a kind father. He is a merciful father. He is a patient father. He cares for us. And so we have a God who wants to hear from us, who loves us. Next, we are reminded that this loving God is a forgiving God. He doesn't just love us when we do right. He loves us when we do wrong. And one of the greatest stories that that Jesus shares is the story of a prodigal son and a loving father. And so we have this son who who goes to his alive dad, his living dad, and he says, I know you're not dead yet, but I want your inheritance. Give it to me. What a disrespectful, what a, a dishonoring thing to say to your parents. Give me that which is not mine. I wish you were dead. He takes it, and that sinful man goes, and he lives wildly. And he spends all that he has to the point that he finds himself in a time of famine, in a time of great desperation, as he's helping uh, tend to, to pigs in a pig pen. He's so hungry. He's so much in need that he covets the pods that the pigs are eating. I mean, talk about the absolute quintessential picture of rebellion and sin and self-indulgence and pride arrogance. Let me remind us a picture of ourselves. And the story says that the man comes to his right thinking and says, I could do far better if I was a helper in my father's house. If I was a servant in my father's house, I'd live better than this. So I will go back to my father and I will beg and I will plead that that my father give me an opportunity to be one of his helping hands in his house. And the text tells us, Jesus tells us, 
that while the young man was still far off, the father saw him. He was looking for him. And when he saw his son still far off, he ran to him. An uncommon practice in Jewish days. Your dad didn't run to you. You came to your dad. But no, the father comes running. And the father doesn't give words of reprimand. The father doesn't give words of anger. The father wraps his arms around the sinful, indulgent, arrogant, and prideful son. The rebellious son who wanted him dead. The father puts his arms around him and says, let's throw a party. That which was lost is now found. This is the God whom we pray to. Who does not hold our sins against us. Who does not sit there and beat us up over and over again for the wrong we have done. He is a God who absolutely loves you. And wants to reveal that in his communication with you. But for some of us, we, we've taken that too far. And there's a casualness to, to what we've said. So you're amening. You're saying, well, of course, Tim. Yes, God, he's my friend. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. And, and, and yeah, that's how I communicate. And so our prayers are incredibly casual. And, and, and our sin becomes casual because he's a God who forgives. And thus, if he forgives, then, then it doesn't really matter if I sin. And Jesus takes care of it because he says, our Father, this Abba that we have, he's in heaven. And when you see that phrase in heaven, I want you to always remember it is Jesus saying that God is a God of authority. You see, yes, we are a part of a community, and yes, we are a part of a family. But let us never forget that when we pray to our Father, He is the one who is in authority. Some years ago when I was probably a freshman or sophomore in high school, I was working with my dad for the summer, and, and I'd come to really enjoy my relationship with my dad. And we were on a job where my dad uh, was being ribbed by some of the uh, customers that we were talking with playfully. And they had known my dad for a while. They were longtime customers of my dad. And, and I remember my dad's, uh, the customers saying about my dad, they said, oh, you know, you're just a good old camel jockey, Bill. Camel jockey from Iraq. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We love our camel jockey. My dad laughed. The guys laughed. I laughed. I thought it was funny. On the way home from the event, we're having a great conversation and all of that. And my dad said something. I said, oh, oh, dad, you're just an old camel jockey. My dad didn't laugh. And I knew I'd crossed the line. And my dad looked at me and he said, son, you're my son. You're not my friend. You're not my peer. You're not my customer. You're my son. You don't talk to me that way. But why, Dad? We're family. Why, Dad? We're friends. Because my dad carries a position in my life that he is my authority. And when we approach God, we can never forget that that same Jesus and, and Heavenly Father in heaven whom we pray to, who is our friend, is also the immortal, invisible God who the book of Hebrews says is an all-consuming fire. And so we have to hold in tension this friend we have, the eminence of Jesus, and the transcendence, uh, I'm sorry, the eminence of Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, and the transcendence of a holy God. And let me illustrate this for you, and then we'll move on. The Apostle John was the youngest of all the disciples. Many scholars believe that the Apostle John was a cutie pie. Yes, he was a cutie. Okay? He was young, far younger than the late 20s that many of the disciples were. Probably a young teenager, maybe even younger than that, 10, 11 years of age. The reason why we believe that is he outlived all the other disciples by, by years. I mean, by a long time. So either he had taken the right supplements or he was much younger. And that probably gives us a picture of why John was the disciple that Jesus loved. There's something endearing about a young person, about their innocence, about their desire to learn and grow. And so we see John as a young man, and he says some dumb things as a young man, as all the disciples did. But on the night that Jesus is betrayed, 
during the Last Supper, we are told something in the text that John reclines at the breast of Jesus. He leans back on Jesus. This is a picture of utmost intimacy. This is up close and personal. And so we get this idea that Jesus and, and, and John, man, they're like this, man. They're, they're connected. You, you, this is a close relationship. And if all we had was the gospel of John, we might think that, that the only two points we've got to worry about is that we're in community and we're family. But I want to remind you that John wrote another book besides the gospel of John. He wrote the book of Revelation. And in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, Jesus meets, I'm sorry, John meets that same Jesus that he reclined against, that he was up close and personal with. And when he sees Jesus, so we got the same two players, John and Jesus in the upper room, they're leaning up, up close and personal. John and Jesus in the book of Revelation, the Bible makes it clear, John makes it clear, when I saw him, I fell as if I was dead. Wait a minute. What happened to John saying, hey, Jesus, let's get close. Let's get up close and personal. Let's enjoy one another. No, 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 no. The same God whom we serve is the God that we can cuddle up to. But let us never forget, he is the one whom we will fall on our faces dead in his presence. So let's not play games with God. Let's not take his desire to allow us to get up close and personal as a way for us to grow comfortable. He's our authority. Notice that then leads to something. As we are in encountering this God, this Jesus, uh, as, as God personified in human flesh, this one we are to pray to, then we must then move to not, not only acknowledging the person of God, but now then affirming the preeminence of God. You see, once we've identified to whom we are praying, then we must ask the question, is he worth praying to? What I mean by that is if God is who he says he is, then it would only seem natural for you and I to dedicate ourselves to a life that is characterized by prayer. You see, so many of us struggle with prayer. And, and if I was to take a moment and have you write down why uh, you struggle with prayer, you would write down many of the same things I do. I, I'm busy. Being a father and a, a businessman and a pastor... Uh, coming and going, never knowing which way I'm going at times. It's hard to, to take a moment and pray. Some of you may say, well, I'm just not gifted in the way of prayer. As if prayer is some spiritual gifting. It's not, by the way. Maybe you say, you know, I, I've got ADD. Every time I go to my quiet place to pray, I'm distracted. My, I can't get my mind uh, focused in on it. I just, I, I struggle with it. So it's not my fault that I don't pray. Let me tell you something. The reason why Jesus gives that we don't pray is that his Father in heaven is not preeminent in our lives. That's it. You're not hallowing the name of our Father in heaven. He's not that important to us. No, our TV is, our our uh, social media is, our jobs are, our kids are, our lives are far more important. And so instead of praying to God, we go to that which is most important. Understand this, your priorities always rise to the top. And so if God's your priority, you will pray. I can, I can assure you of that. You will pray if God is a priority. You will not pray if he's not number one. And so we have to then ask, do we affirm, do we agree with Jesus that we serve a Father in heaven whose name is to be hallowed? Now, what in the world does that mean? That's not a word that we hear very often. Hallowed. It's not hollow as if it's empty, but hallowed. What does it mean? The root of this simply means to set apart as holy, to consider or treat something as holy, to revere something above all else. And then we have to ask the question, what in the world does it, what are we to hallow? The answer is the name of God. Why the name? Why are we to hallow God's name? Well, the name in Jewish times was that which you would articulate as the fulfillment of all who you are 
and that which you were called to be. I've told you I love being the son of a Middle Eastern father because names are important. And when I was born, the second son to my mom and dad, I was given the name Timothy Daniel. Now why Timothy? Not because it rolled off the tongue well or all the good-looking guys have the name Timothy. I know, that's the American thought. Some of you just threw up in your mouth. I, I get it. But the name Timothy has incredible symbolism. Timothy in the Bible, the disciple of Paul, was a young man who was born into a mixed family. Timothy's dad was a Greek. Timothy's mom was a Jew. And Timothy, at a very young age, was taught in the ways of the Lord. And so my parents looked at this little bundle of joy, by the way, much smaller than you would ever think I would have been. I was a little guy. When they saw him, they said, hey, we're of a mixed race. But here's where we agree on the name of the Lord. We're going to raise this kid from his infancy. He will know the Holy Scriptures. But then I was given the middle name of Daniel. And my father wanted a name that would continue to remind me and him of where he had come from. Daniel was a prophet, a Jewish young man, who very quickly in his life would be taken from his place where God's name would be honored and taken into a land where God's name would be profaned. And Daniel would serve that that God whom he had known from a young age. He would serve him in most, some of the most vilest of empires. You see, Daniel was taken from Jerusalem and taken to Iraq. And he would change his culture from the inside out. And he would do so where the government said, you can't do any of that. My dad has been really excited by some of the things that that God has allowed me to be a part of. And I have made my goal in life, not just to be your pastor, but to be an ever-present presence in my community. And my dad says, you're living up to your namesake, son. Because Daniel could have just sat idly by and said that culture's going to hell. But Daniel encountered it. And he took it hands on. And I am so blessed to have heard that from my dad because my desire is not just to preach to a bunch of Christians, but to impact the community around me from the inside out. You see, when you're able to connect your mission to your name, it's life-changing. It impacts you. And maybe you've been named something that that maybe doesn't have a lot of significance, and that's okay because you can write a new history and you can write a new name where when your name is spoken, it reminds people of the faithfulness of God. You see, because God revealed himself in his name, he's El Shaddai, he's Adonai, he is Jehovah Jireh. He is, he is uh, uh, Jehovah Sidkenu, which means he is our righteousness. You see, the name of God is that which we trust. The psalmist says that uh, many hope in horses, others in chariots, but we trust the name in the name of our Lord, our God. Jesus' whole mission uh, was to make known the name of his Father in heaven. In John 17, O righteous Father, O righteous Abba, he prayed, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and I have made these who have known me to know of your name and to make it known. We are to hollow the name of God. It means we are to hollow all that he is and all that he does. Notice the question then is asked, when are we to hollow this name? Notice this word hollowed in the Greek language is in what we call the aorist tense. And what that means is that this hollowing took place sometime in the past, a definite place in the past, and it has ongoing and, and forever implications. And so at some point in eternity past, and here's where it took place, God's name was hollowed the moment God existed 
with something else in the universe. The moment God created the very first thing, whatever that was, long before the heavens and the earth, long before humanity, before that, God created, whatever he created in that eons ago, he hollowed himself. And every time he creates, he continues to hollow his name. And so when the angels were created, which came before we know creation, he hallowed himself amongst the angels. When the universe was created, he hallowed himself. He set himself apart from creation. As he made humanity, he set himself apart from us and continues to set himself apart from us to the day of eternity which begins. He will continue forevermore to hallow himself apart from all other things. He is setting himself apart because he is magnificent. He is beautiful. He is powerful. He is more than we could ever imagine or think. He is indescribable, as one of our praise songs says. So that begs the question. And that means, what are we going to do with him? And so three things, very quickly. We need to ask, are we going to determine to see if he's number one? We have to determine to see if God is going to be number one. Now that Jesus has declared who our God is, that his name is to be number one in our lives, then we need to ask the question, is he? Is he number one? Is God your priority? Is he above all other relationships? Is God what fires you up? Is God what gets you up in the morning? Is God what brings you the supreme joy and passion of your life? Is God the reason that you live your life? Is God your only reason for living? Because if he's not, then he's not hallowed. Now some of us, in fact all of us, no doubt, have have conflicting issues in our lives. Our family, our friends, our occupations, all of these things are to be secondary to the one relationship that we have with our Father who is in heaven and we are to hallow his name. And so that then leads us to what young people these days call the DTR. You old people don't know what I'm saying, but DTR is when two people are dating and at some point you have to define the relationship. And so some of us have been hanging around Jesus for a while. We've been hanging around God for a while and God is saying, you need to define this. Who am I in your life? Jesus did this with the disciples when he said, who do people say that I am? Well, this is what they say, Jesus. No, let me ask you, who do you say that I am? Let's determine, let's define this relationship. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Peter articulates, you're number one. You're it. Everything else is secondary. Well, when we define that and determine that God is number one, notice a couple things that take place. We will do some stuff. Luther, in his great catechism, uh, was asked the question, how do we hollow the name of God? Luther said, when one's life and doctrine are fully Christian. What that means is when we choose to hollow the name of God, we will declare that God is number one. When God is number one, you and I will speak about him in such a way that announces to all others that he is preeminent. That's why you and I need to be careful that we do not take the Lord's name in vain, that we do not swear falsely by using his name, that we must always speak of God with reverence. This will change the way that we worship. Worship will not be something, listen to me, that we casually enter in when we feel right, when we feel like it's time to do it. But we will enter into this place with thanksgiving and joy in our heart, praising the name of the greatest one in all of the universe. It means when we hallow the name of God, and we believe the right things about him. Some of you are willing to have an infantile understanding of the God you say you serve. And God says, I want you to know me. I want you to know all of that which I will reveal to you. I want you to know. You say, but theology is boring. Theology only puffs up the human mind. Let me tell you something. I love Amanda. And I know that's not something that, that comes by surprise. But here's what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to get to know her as best I can. Why? Because I love her. If we love God, do we not desire the same thing? To know him, 
to relate to him, not from a surface level, but to the depths of who we are. Here's the thing. Many of us choose to allow the name of God to be nothing in our lives because we choose to limit our understanding of God. God will, this is important you hear this, God will only be as big as your beliefs and your theology let you worship him. So you got to declare it. Next, you got to demonstrate it in all ways. Ray Pritchard in his book on the Lord's Prayer says that there are many things that don't hollow the name of God. And I like looking sometimes at, at a positive command and looking at the negative. And, and this is what he says. God's name is not hollowed when drugs are sold like candy on street corners, when millions of babies are killed through abortion each year in America, where sexuality is not celebrated between a man and a, wi- a, man and a woman, a husband and a wife, but by whoever and whatever you desire to put your affections upon. God is not honored and his name is not hallowed when the divorce rate equals that of the marriage rate. When we laugh and giggle at things, debauchery on TV, instead of causing those things to cause us to blush. God's name is not hallowed when we think nothing of attending filthy movies. We take God's name in vain and laugh at dirty jokes when we cheat on our taxes and joke about it, when we expect our leaders to lie and are surprised when they don't. God's name is not hallowed when we keep quiet in order to avoid persecution on the job. God's name is not hallowed when we secretly envy sinners who do the things that we are forbidden to do. God's name is not hallowed when we tithe to a mortgage company instead of tithing to the Lord. God's name is not hallowed when we value the approval of others more than the approval of of God, when we gossip about the sins of others instead of mourning over our own sins, when we criticize our brothers for failing to live up to our own expectations, we do not hallow the name of God when the Christian allows the Bible to become a closed book and prayer to become a heavy burden. You see, the Lord's Prayer is a high standard. Commentator Helmut Felix says the following, you have not learned to pray the Lord's Prayer unless you pray it against yourself. What that means is we have to pray against our own tendencies to elevate self and to lift high the name of God. You see, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we can't say hallowed be your name, but not in my business, not in my finances, not in my leisure, my friendships, my sex life, my thought life, my speech, my desires and my plans, my schedules and my priorities. God, you have all of it, but you can't touch any of it. To do so is to not hollow the name of God, but to sin and rebel against his spirit. So you and I must decide. We must decide, are we going to affirm the preeminence of God in our lives? What that will mean is we'll accept the program. I'm not going to take a long time. It wasn't planned to do so. But notice he says that we will then pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, when we acknowledge the person of God and affirm the preeminence of God, you and I will accept with open hands the plans of God. Far too many of us are struggling with the things of God because we don't see him as sovereign and as good. Job was able to say, God gives and he takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Man, it's your will, God. It's your plan. It's your kingdom. Do as you will. Even if that means that I have to take some losses in this life, I'm willing to do so and do so with praise in my heart. We need to understand that when we ask for the kingdom of God to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that Jesus is expecting us not to just pray for the small things. It is no small task, the ushering in of God's kingdom. Number two, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Literally in the text, it is a cry of conviction. Come, kingdom of God. Come, will of God. We are yearning, we are desiring for the kingdom and will and plans of God to come so that God may be glorified. And even if that means we have to change who we are, we will do all that we can to be in the center of God's will and his plan and in his kingdom. And that involves very quickly four things. The will and kingdom of God impacts you personally. It impacts you personally. What is God's will and kingdom 
to look like in your life? Number one, write this down just next to personally. It means you'll be satisfied solely in him. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So you want to understand what God's will for your life is? That you would be totally satisfied, that you would taste and see that God is truly good. Second, it will mean that you are fully sanctified. Fully satisfied, fully sanctified. That means you are in endeavoring each and every day to become like Christ. To be filled by His Spirit. To turn away from sin and ungodliness and to put your life in His hands. God's will and plan then leads to us being fully secure. That just as the prodigal son, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. That which He saved, He protects until He calls us home. Notice there's a will and plan in God's kingdom for us corporately as the church. The Bible says that God's kingdom is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. And he demands that his church be a place of power. And so God's will for his church is that you and I would exalt the name of Jesus together. That we would encourage the timid. We would exhort the wayward. That we would equip the saints and evangelize the lost. All the while while knowing that the gates of hell shall never ever be able to take it away from us. So if God is for us, who in the world can be against us? That means that God's kingdom is to be seen globally. That we are to take the gospel to the four corners of the world and so that from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, God would make from all nations a people unto himself. That the people of this world will one day, on the day of God's choosing, bow the knee and praise the name above every other name. The name of Jesus. You say, well, what's beyond globally? God has a plan celestially. That he is going to bring this earth and this solar system and this galaxy and the many galaxies that no human eye can see every star every molecule he will bring together one day and at one moment at the culmination of all things this god who is in heaven whose name is to be hallowed will call for all of his creation in one voice and in one moment of time to gather together and with one celestial voice celebrate the glory of god in one eternal crescendo and glory be the name of the lord when that happens That is where God will say to his son, here, rest your foot on the footstool of the universe. And where we will in one voice forevermore praise the name of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've learned a lot about prayer this week. And I've learned that my self-righteousness and self-reliance is sin. And I need to depend on the only God who has the answer. The God who has invited me to pray. The Son who has taught me how to pray. And I must let that prayer burn deep within me so that I might pray as God intended and buy into it by believing and trusting by faith that all that God says is true and that He is able to hear and answer all my prayers. And that in doing so, I might bring glory and praise to the God who deserves it. So do the same this week. Live lives of prayer. Dedicate yourself to the God of the universe. Believe who he is and live by that belief. So that you might not only pray the right prayers, but live the right prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Let's go to prayer now. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we've learned much about who you are through how you have modeled prayer. You have told us and you have shown us how we are to encounter our Father in heaven. Lord, in our words and in our deeds, let us set apart God as number one. 
Let us not do it only in the pews of this church on a Sunday, but let us do it every day of our week in all places. Let us do so, Lord, because we know that your plans cannot be thwarted, because your plans will be brought to fruition, because on that great day that will culminate human history, all eyes will be on you, all knees will be bowed, and every tongue will confess that you are the Lord. You have revealed by your spirit this truth, and so let us live by this truth now so that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven by the angels and by the saints of old. Let us live with you being number one. Let us pray in that way. Let us live in that way so that we may glory in you. Send us forth from this place now, Jesus, with your spirit empowering us so that we may be salt and light, that we may show the world what it's like to live in relationship with the Alpha and Omega, to be the children of the Most High God. We love you, and we give you all the praise for this service. And now, Lord, as we fellowship, let this be the subject of our fellowship as we gather and speak to one another with words of grace and love. In Christ's name we pray, amen.